The talk tonight is about the spiritual birth process. So I'd like to read um, a poem by Hafiz. It's called For a While. We have all come to the right place. We all sit in God's classroom. Now the only thing left for us to do, my dear, is to stop throwing spitballs for a while. (laughs) So we all sit in the classroom. All we have to do is stop throwing spitballs. So we're here to learn. And in that process of learning, what we're doing is giving birth to uh, the adventure of living life at a great depth. We're giving birth to an examined life. Why learn from life? Hopefully we will uh, access deeper and deeper levels of freedom so that we can act in the world from our deepest center of wisdom and love. And this um, acting out of our deepest center is the greatest gift we can give this world. As human beings, uh, we take birth into a very um, magnificent, in a way, range of joy and sorrow. And if we just listen to the range of duality, male, female, predator, prey, birth, death, war, peace, easy, difficult, householder, monk or nun. Duality is a great paradox. And part of um, giving birth to wisdom and love is the willingness to face the range of joy and sorrow in the world. And initially, um, facing this duality can be shattering. It's meant to crack us open. And out of this opening comes the commitment uh, to wake up and to learn, you know, what is going on here? How can we be free in this range of pleasure, pain, joy, and sorrow? So we learn how to be open, vulnerable, receive life as it is, but also to be balanced within it, to not take it personally. There's a road that um, I've traveled a lot over the years teaching here, uh, from Barrie to Western Massachusetts. Uh, There's a back road that goes to the town of Shutesbury. And a friend of mine who's an acupuncturist in Amherst, who used to live in Shutesbury, Uh, had to commute on this road every day. And it's this incredibly winding road along 
uh, a stream. Very curvy. Uh, and he said that until he had a little accident in the winter on this road, that he used to drive it like it was straight. <laughs> That's what we do with our lives. <laughs> we try to drive this spiritual journey like the road straight. And we get so upset when it curves, yes? And it curves, and you know, we think something's wrong. Uh, but that's how it is. Usually when I'm um, traveling through the airport in Honolulu, I don't notice this particular uh, display of shells from around the world. Um, But sometimes uh, I take the time to look in this unbelievable uh, showcase. And most people just go by it. They don't even see it. And one of the shells in this um, display uh, is cut like so that you can see the cross-section of it. And it, it just shows this spiraling journey around the center, which is really like how the spiritual path does unfold. You know, it's really how we give birth to wisdom and love, is by spiraling around the same ordinary things, like the breath. How more ordinary could that be? Or walking, or washing the dishes, or fear, or despair. You know, all these really ordinary human experiences are what we... uh, want to drive straight, Uh, but actually learning how to navigate through these um, curves because of the nature of duality. Uh, It's not so easy uh, to, to be motivated from a place where we're not expecting it to be straight, where we're not expecting there to be obstacles. I think of mindfulness itself as a kind of ongoing cycle of a return to the source. We just remember to return to the source. We remember to return to the source. And it's like that pre-verbal awareness is the source. It's what allows a moment to be newborn, fresh, free from conditions. So even that, you can see, is a kind of cycling round and round to return to an original moment or original love. Another way that we could see mindfulness is that it's, it's repairing our disconnection from the truth. It's repairing the disconnection from ourselves. It's repairing our disconnection from the truth of others. Uh, And it helps us to navigate through life as it truly is unknown territory um, so that we can really explore. 
So hopefully we have this um, attitude about spiritual practice that it is a learning, that we can learn to throw less and less spitballs as we get that it is about the curves, you know, it is about um, trusting our spiritual practice enough to incorporate the obstacles as part of the birth process. This morning, uh, someone asked about um, the process of purification itself. And I just wanted to go over that a little bit again, because this is really the spiraling that happens. And it's happening whether we know it or not. It's happening whether we practice or not. Certain conditions will come together where there's moments of purity, unconditional love, or mindfulness, this pre-verbal, non-judgmental awareness, which are natural spiritual qualities that we're learning on retreat to recognize. We're learning to value them. We're learning to be committed to them. And we think that when the conditions come together uh, and they appear, that it's somehow because of something I did, you know, and that (laughs) it's good practice. Uh, Whereas its conditions come together. So say we're on this retreat, you know, we go through this whole seclusion process for a reason. It builds energy. If we have a certain amount of energy, which isn't mine, it isn't personal, but we create the conditions for energy to increase and say there's some mindfulness, some concentration, some equanimity, there'll be these moments of returning to the source, purity. We feel at home. And this is meant to help us to grow spiritually. You know, it's like we want the purity without the price that we pay. You know, we don't really want the purification. You know, we <laughs> if, if you're honest, you'll see that we want to be fully enlightened now. You know, and when it's, when it's going the way we want it to go, that's great. The hard thing is that if you don't know the cycle, it's really easy to take it personally. If we do know the cycle, we take it less and less personally. When we take it less personally, we react less to it, and it makes this process of purity, purification, purity, purification um, have more ease with it, less reaction, more energy. So initially in practice, we'll tend to, um, the ups and downs will be very uh, <laughs> big. If you put it on a graphic chart, you know, it would peak out, <laughs> crash, peak out, crash. And over time, it becomes more rounded. We're not reacting to it. And over retreat, you're actually, um, it's going up. It doesn't seem like it's going up because it's imperceptible day to day, but it is. The less we react to it, the more it accelerates. 
do we want that? <laughs> do we want it to go faster? More purification. That means facing more greed, hatred, and delusion. The bad joke in all this is that when purity happens, as the energy starts to go down, that's when the purification usually happens, technically. So when we're at our most vulnerable is usually when a, a deeper layer of aversion or attachment appears. It's simple. Uh, but it, it's like the very thing that we're not wanting to look at, the very thing that we're calling an obstacle, uh, will appear. Because it's purifying. Uh, and it's uh, usually our blind spots. It's like something we don't want to see about ourselves. So as the energy goes down, this is the bad joke, whatever we're really going to probably resist appears. And we don't have the courageous energy to usually deal with it, so we fight it. We don't have the equanimity or the concentration or whatever. We don't see it clearly. We fight it, we fight it, we fight it. And you know this really well. (laughs) At a certain point, we kind of crash. And at some point, (laughs) the trumpet blows. The little white flag comes up. We appear out of the trench, you know, in our camouflage, you know, all kind of beat up and go, oh, maybe I could try accepting this. (laughs) Because there's nothing else we can do, right? It's not like we're so brave, really. It's it's we're backed into a corner. And uh, finally, we work with it. That's usually how it happens. Uh, and then the you know things come back to Humpty Humpty Dumpty comes back together again, you know, and usually it's like oh boy you know, you know that's over with you know and it comes together again and then the good practice is there and that's what we think we're here for. It's unbelievable over and over again we become invincible, you know that's not going to happen again right, you know, I got through it this time it can't possibly appear again. These two worlds are completely different. It's like when we're lost, and we're really lost, and we have no idea what it's like to not be. And when we're not lost, we're invincible. We have no idea what it would be like to get caught again. It's amazing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and look at all of us in the room. Most of us have been through it thousands and thousands of times. But there's usually that little thought, you know, I'm not going to get caught this time, you know. And if it's only if we were fully enlightened would we be not caught this time. Because it, it's like the aversion and attachment will masquerade for our, for our blind spot. It's simple, but not so easy to face again and again and again. So that's the spiraling and the spiraling. And you know those moments of mindfulness, it's like, ah, we return to the source.
one of the um, aspects of the practice that are really important that are, are important to understand in relationship to purity and purification are um, ways in which we get concentrated. And it's the same in the metta practice as in the vipassana practice. You know, it might seem a little different, but they are the same factors of concentration. So the first two factors that I wanted to speak about are vitaka and vichara, the connecting, the attention with what's happening, and the sustaining of it. So whether we're doing that with uh, metaphrases, for example, repeating metaphrases, the ability to say the phrase, to connect with it, would be vitaka. To understand the meaning of the phrase and have interest in whoever we're wishing well would be the vichara. If we're with the movement of the breath, or a sound, body sensation, whatever it is. It's the ability to have the attention connect with what's happening in that present moment. That's vitaka. And vichara is the ability to sustain that connection as whatever is appearing moves. So this isn't so easy, really, because life is so move. It's you know so ungraspable. It's moving. It's it's um, the closest that I could say that you can grasp this is a, the surface of water. When you see how alive the surface of water is, and just the lightest breeze, you can see how affected, how sensitive it really is. Our attention and life is like this. It takes such a delicacy to really connect the attention with air element, movement of the breath. You know, it's not so easy to notice air element moving, right? I mean, you know, we might talk about it as if it's an easy thing, but to connect the attention and then sustain it is not so easy, because it moves. And what's appearing is actually quite um, ephemeral, ephemeral. So say we can do that, connect the attention, sustain it. Um, Sometimes, as we do it, this interest will appear. And this feels really good. And that's the beginning. It's like the immersion. We start, um, it's like we're immersed. There's less duality. We still, there'll be still a sense uh, of observer, observe. But there becomes this interest in what's happening. And you know when you taste this, it starts to feel wonderful. Whether, whatever practice you're doing, become interested in life as it is if it's Vipassana practice. Um, and so the, the next jhanic factor or concentration factor, rapture or piti, um, has this quality of joyful interest. Whether the experience is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And this is a huge achievement. Anytime you have the remotest interest in something painful, it's a huge achievement. It breaks down the ego. It breaks down self-centeredness. 
And then the next two factors are called sukha, ikagata. Sukha is happiness or the sweet happiness um, that um, knows the experience from within. So this is often when you'll feel the experience of, of observer, observe, breakdown. And it's like you've jumped in to life. You're no longer skimming the surface. Um, so you know when you have um, an experience where you've let go of your conditioned knowing of concept, such as the word bell, when you hear the bell. No I, no bell, just hearing. There's an immersion. That's when you have the experience of there's a kind of sweet sukha, um, happiness. Um, it's because you're knowing the experience from the inside, and you're not a caught in conditioning. And this is even a greater achievement, not so easy to do. The last concentration factor, ikagata, or tranquility, is that experience of just utter um, spaciousness, stillness, and non-duality. And this um, deeper and deeper immersion in the present moment, whatever is appearing, takes this willingness to jump, to fall into, this willingness not to know what's going to happen. And in, in, uh, Mahasi Sayadaw describes Nibbana, or the, uh, the unconditioned. He calls it falling into the unconditioned. And that's beautiful. It's like you can see when you really let yourself go that it requires letting go of everything to really be in the present moment. And sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. So the idea of uh, sitting in life's classroom um, means that we're willing to face any resistance to this process. You know, we face our unwillingness to be with certain experiences. And hopefully we get a sense of being able to step back and be with that. That that's okay, that it's part of spiraling. It's part of that shift from purity to purification. Of course, we have said many times that the suffering in life or in practice, is when we're identified with the resistance, that the actual experience is usually okay. And we learn that over and over and over again. Um, But remember that you can have equanimity with being lost. We don't have to take personally having resistance or being lost. Now, all one has to recognize is that one's lost. It's not, I am lost. It's just like we don't say, I am hearing. It's just hearing. When we're lost, it's just lost. 
And there's something quite, I feel like when I first learned how to do this, to just walk around, walk and sit in this place of just totally accepting being lost, it helped me in my life and practice more than anything. Because, you know, honestly, how much are we lost? (laughs) Quite a bit. How much are we really accepting? Uh, so it, it sort of melts, it melts and melts the ego to really let it be okay that there's low energy, to let it be okay when purification happens, to let it be okay when there's just being lost. There's no one who's lost, only being lost. And eventually, as you can see, Humpty Dumpty comes back together again. Sometimes it takes longer than I want, but it does come back together again. Uh, There was a great teacher, uh, Mayor Baba, that um, described this process of immersion um, very beautifully. It's more from the perspective of loving-kindness, but it's still the same whether we describe a mindfulness or loving-kindness. He described um, when two people are angry at each other, when they're the most separate, uh, that we usually su- shout. Yeah, we talk loudly <laughs> uh, because we feel so separate. And when we're more um, loving, we speak softly. And he said, when two people are deeply in love, there are no words necessary. And this is just the same as practice. It's like when we're really immersed in the present moment, it's just like two people in love. There's no observer observed. And you're just totally present. And you'll know there's no even need for noting then. It would get in the way. You would just be totally there. And of course, when we're more in the place of fighting <laughs> or, or speaking loudly, you know, I find it really helpful when I'm standing in front of a doorway to go, reaching. You know, it's just, come in please. Yoo-hoo, Michelle. You know, it's just the opposite of being really there, you know, and just to make a note reaching, you stand a chance to show up for that experience. (laughs) You might lose it halfway. You know, we do, but just sometimes the noting, and sometimes the constant noting, reaching, 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 touching, it's a wonderful art to know when to note and when it's not necessary to note. And noting is also a very good feedback system, because I notice when I need noting, my ego doesn't like it. It's like, I, I want to be back in that other place, you know, and to just finally admit that I need it. Rising. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Come back to the planet versus really being so immersed, it's effortless, and you don't need it. Both are true in a long day of practice. (laughs) 
so you don't like being Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> you could call it something else. It's great to come up with one's own names that are a little fun for when we don't have perfect, effortless practice. This winter, um, Steve, Steve Smith's niece, um, She had this incredible um, balance all the time with the bed rest. She had this balance. You know, she had taken some classes where she basically learned to be mindful through through pain and through difficulty. And um, so she had already had quite a difficult time by the time we were in the hospital together. But she had had such ease with it. You know, I was sort of used to her having this ease. Uh, and at a certain point when the real, real labor pain started, I mean, when it just started to get really bad, she just still had this quality of calm and ease. And she looked at me and she said, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> totally serious. You know, she's like, get me out of here. <laughs> like, I can do something about it, right? You know, and I, I'm like, you know, <laughs> I don't think we can leave, you know. <laughs> I'm not leaving here with you. You know, and she <laughs> and she's, you know, just get me out of here. I mean, it was just so strong. She just, the resistance, she hit a wall that was so strong. And it, she was so calm and so serious, like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> you know, so I just was like, well, <laughs> I, I don't think we can stop this. Uh, um <laughs> so I held her hand, and, you know, we went through it, and she got through that one. And then she hit one more. The, the head was coming out, you know, and it was just another, you know, it was excruciating. And she just looked at me, and she's like, mm-mm. <laughs> I'm not doing this. And I'm like, I think this is really too late to change your mind. I, I just think, you know, we've got to keep going here, you know. And... Uh, we're doing that here, each one of us. You know when you hit the wall. It just, we do it. It's like the, the spiritual birth process is this amazing, intense, beautiful, wondrous, achingly painful, and pleasurable experience. And it's so wonderful that, you know, each time we hit that place of freedom, you know, what's amazing is that it keeps you going, right? It keeps you going, just like a woman who forgets what childbirth pain is like. My, I remember my niece, after this incredible childbirth pain, decided to have another baby. You know, And I looked at her and I said, remember how you described the last birth? And she said, yeah. And she, said, she described it as um, squeezing a watermelon through one nostril. <laughs> <laughs> I said, so you're going to do it again, huh? <laughs> and she said, yeah, <laughs> I forgot, you know. <laughs> you come for a long retreat, it's the same. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> 
And we say to you, you know, it doesn't matter what the experience is, you know, <laughs> whether it's pleasurable or painful, that it's how we relate to the experience, you know, whether things are, whether we're wearing, whether it's restlessness, whether it's joy or fear or terror. Yeah, we just rem- remind you. It's this non judgmental attention. We're learning to give birth to freedom in this human world, which is this range of joy and sorrow. And to learn to have every experience become acceptable takes time. Sometimes uh, Mahatma Gandhi said that the spiritual journey is a long and arduous process. This is a quotation from Virginia Woolf. The beauty of the world, which is so soon to perish, has two edges, one of laughter, one of anguish, cutting the heart asunder. So I'd like to kind of touch into both of those aspects, the joy and sorrow, and how we relate to that. So this niece I just described that um, described the birth process, the watermelon metaphor. Um, I have been reconnecting with her and her children since my dad died. Um, and her children, especially the three-year-old daughter, you know, Tinkerbell that I described the first night, she reminds me so much of my niece Tracy. It's like um, just this constant flashback of when I raised her. Um, And when I went to um, say goodbye to her and her two children um, the last time I was visiting her, it was so interesting. She was standing just outside my car with the two kids, and I'm driving away. And it was just like what it was like when I would drive away from her when she was a little kid, except here was this next generation. And I could feel this love, it was like it was unbearable. You know, the ache was just so unbearable. And I was looking at, what is so unbearable here? This connection feels so full, so karmic, so deep. Um, and yet, what hurts so much in it? And it, it was like that there has to be separation sometimes. You know, that we can't control it. We can't keep it the way we want to, but that utter openness, the vulnerability, you know, it's so beautiful, and yet there's an ache. Sometimes in emerging from some of the deepest places in practice, I have felt that just the ache of incarnation itself in the heart, and it's so, it's so exquisite, but it's so poignant, uh, and it, I think it's what, um, being able to withstand just that aching beauty of an open heart. Um, it's so, so easy to close down so we don't feel that ache of it. And I had never met um, my three-year-old great-niece before this um, time with my dad dying. Uh, so I spent some time with her 
recently that I described some of, but it was so interesting. Not only does she remind me of my niece Tracy, but she has all the energy of my nephew, Tony. Uh, And she was sick. She had the flu. And uh, I always have this sort of resistance to someone getting in my face when they have the flu. And I could tell I was falling in love with her when she said, come close and kiss me on the lips. (laughs) 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 And, you know, she's sick as a dog. She'd just been throwing up, and I'm like, okay. (laughs) And then she wanted this scarf that I loved that actually I had had with me in the hospital with my dad, and I would cry all my tears in it. And, you know, all through this process of having the scarf with me in the hospital, I was getting really attached to the scarf. She asked for the scarf. Okay. You know, and afterwards I'm like, boy, am I falling for her, you know? (laughs) I can't believe it. I kiss her on the lips, I give her my scarf. You know, it's like, wow. Um, And there's that ache, and yet there's the separation, yeah? We have to accept that there's the openness, the vulnerability, and then the letting go. Can we be willing to feel that much, to connect that deeply? and then to let go with ourselves. It's like when I'm on a retreat, what I value so much is that intimacy with myself. And when I leave the retreat, to leave that intimacy is so painful. You know, it doesn't have to be with another being. You know, it's, it's also, it's, the, it's that connection, it's that immersion, that non-duality, that return to the source that's so important. And then there's the other side, um, the sorrow, uh, the anguish. Sometimes we get a chance to uh, do something right. And I think that with my dad, um, we had had some pretty tough karma together. Um, He was very violent and... um, I could almost describe it as that sometimes he had no fuse, and sometimes he had an inexplicably (laughs) short fuse. But in the last bit of um, time of his life, he was in so much physical pain that he really had no fuse. And I I kept a certain distance from my dad since I was five to sort of... um, make sure the karma stayed clean enough between us. Let's put it that way. Uh, And, of course, he started to get so sick that he um, was about to fall and need help. But my dad didn't want to accept any help until he was helpless. It's like that was part of his thing. Uh, So we had this little scene a week before he became totally helpless with my sister, my other sister who's alive, came up to visit him, and I I was there. And we, my sister and I both knew it was just about we were just he was just about to uh, hit the worst part. Um, And he decided that we should go to the cemetery to visit my mom's grave, which um, we'd never done. 
In fact, you know, he never mentioned that my mother died. She died when I was 13. So this was sort of, all of a sudden we were doing this unfinished business, right? I mean, 13 years old, we're going to the grave, right? And, um, you know, this is funny. <laughs> you know, this is kind of funny that we're all in the car about to go to the grave. Um, and my sister, who's never gone to the grave either, I've been, I've visited it by myself, but my sister has never wanted to go to the grave, and she's sort of a nervous wreck, so she's smoking in the front seat and probably had a, a flask of wine on the way to the cemetery. She was probably drinking it in the car. And, uh, you know, my family was extremely dysfunctional. <laughs> so we're, we're in the cemetery, and I'm in the back seat, and I'm like, oh boy, here we go. And my father couldn't find the grave. And I, I'm the one my father would take out all his anger at, at. So we're in the graveyard, and my father can't find the grave. And he's furious, and I'm waiting and waiting. And I said, in my little kid voice, I go, it's over there, Dad. <laughs> And I knew I probably shouldn't have done it, but I, you know, that was the beginning. It's over there, Dad. And he just like, got furious, and he puts the car in reverse, and he backs up, and he almost knocks this grave over. And then I started in. I got caught. I got caught in the old condition. I go, go ahead, Dad. Hit the grave. That'll be good. That'll be good. You know. <laughs> you can imagine. He went ballistic. He like puts it in reverse again goes the other way, and it, there's this nice fountain, you know, that people get the water on to put the, on the flowers, and he, he, like, just about smashes it to smithereens, and I'm like, that's great, Dad, like, well, you know, that was perfect. <laughs> He's so angry, you know, and I'm just, like, egging him on, you know. It was just, like, five years old, you know, and then I felt so humiliated. You know, here's this 84-year-old guy, he's in agony, you know, and he's trying to, for once in his life, set something right, you know, and it was such a horrible scene, you know, and it was like my sister, I thought she's going to have a nervous breakdown, and we're just all sitting there, you know, with the car backed into the fountain. <laughs> and then he surrendered, you know, he like, he went to where I pointed, you know, it was like, wow. The karma is shifting here, you know, life is good, you know, so we did this whole thing, you know, <laughs> um, it wasn't exactly um, what normal people do, you know, but we, <laughs> we drove by the <laughs> grave, you know, <laughs> you know, th this is, <laughs> this was clearing the karma for my family, you know, this was it. <laughs> It was all okay after this, you know. But anyway, I decided at that moment that I wasn't going to do that anymore, you know, because it was horrible. You know, it's like I just got so caught. And afterwards, you know, he fell and he ended up in the hospital and he blew up at me day after day after day. And it was just like being back against this monster you know, that I had to deal with when I was five. And I was so intimidated by him when I was five, and I just refused to do it. And it was just like I'd had it at the cemetery. It was like something shifted in me. And I, I would be in the hospital, and I would just see, instead of anger, I saw terror. It was like he was terrified. And he was terrified his whole life. And then he was terrified of dying. And I was 
And I brought in a CD player, and I played, you know, he, he liked Frank Sinatra. And the song that he wanted to um, have played over and over again was Old Man River. And he would sing the song up to the place where um, the line says, um, you know, when the line says, so tired of living and afraid of dying. And when it would get to that place, he wouldn't sing it. And it was incredible. It was like um, he couldn't quite get to be vulnerable. You know, he just couldn't quite get there until the very end. You know, after all this exploding, 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 um, at the very end, he said, I appreciate all you've done for me. And it was amazing. Just, just at the very end, um, he made it. It was great. But it couldn't have happened if I didn't um, make that decision. You know, it's like I felt like I was holding, holding, holding the karma until he could shift. And I couldn't have done it before this point in time. I would have been too reactive. And I'm not saying that, you know, when I would drive home, oh, actually I was driving here every night from the hospital on the way home, I would just be having this range of, love and rage and love and rage and love and rage, you know, and I would just let it happen and happen and happen, just letting the karma unfold. Things are not always as they seem, and I could see that what I thought of my father's being very angry was actually a lot of terror. And as we sit here this autumn, I think it's really important to remember that there's so much that isn't as it seems. You know, so I've been reading a book about bird migration, the, the latest kind of um, understandings of the mysteries of migration. And the intention of the book is really to make a world safer for birds, because it's so hard for migrating birds um, at this point in time on the planet. And there were such interesting um, descriptions of things. So for example, on a single autumn night, so this is like a night like tonight on Cape Cod, they put radar up just on one night to see how many uh, songbirds flew over on a single autumn night. And they, um, they noticed 12 million, 12 million songbirds flew over in one night. That's happening right now, here. They, they travel at night. The hawks are migrating. But we don't really notice it. You know, it's like we're so unaware, but if you, you know, if you're awake at night and you're outside walking, just the joy of hearing the coyotes or the owls, it's like we, we have such um, range of joy and sorrow, right? You know, we have, we're doing this birth process, and yet if you're really immersed and still, you can feel this joy of all of us being here together. And I don't think there's anything more incredible than to just be walking outside at night or sitting at night and to hear these other beings 
You know, we're so lucky, we're so fortunate. At this time, um, just this time in autumn, over five billion birds migrate at this time. You know, that's, (laughs) we forget how mysterious life really is. Today I was walking in the woods and um, I came across a few blueberry flowers flowering, which is the wrong season for them to be flowering. And I I, um, worked in Barrie, Massachusetts 30 years ago for Mass Audubon. And I was walking in a place where um, I worked 30 years ago. And it was kind of fun to... um, bump into these blueberry flowers because I was taught at that time that you can eat them instead of waiting for the berries. So this afternoon I was just delighting in the unexpected of having a blueberry flower in autumn and getting to eat it. (laughs) There's this great um, battle that we do sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously in this um, birth process between purity and purification. And what can help us surrender rather than to battle is to become interested in the vast range of joy and sorrow that appears in our own body and mind and in the joys and sorrows of the world. And to develop an awe of this spiritual birth process that we're all involved in. This is a world vast and beautiful, ourself and the world. It's like if you think of your body, mind, heart, and the world, This is a world that's often too unloved. And it's a world that we bring so little awe to. So the process of mindfulness is meant to help us um, live an examined life, and out of that examined life to live more immersed in the mystery of things. Albert Einstein said that the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. Let's sit for a minute.
may we throw less and less spitballs. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.